0: This is a reading uh, called The Healing is Not Done by Rebecca Savage. I play this moment over and over again in my head. The day I heard of the Thomas Jefferson Ball, hosted by Unitarian Universalists in 1993. As a person of color raised in a UU congregation, I felt a shiver down my spine as I learned something new and unsettling about the faith that I call home. You may be wondering why this gathering of UUs in 1993 struck me as a profoundly memorable and painful moment. Beloveds, this is why attendees were encouraged to wear period clothes to the ball to celebrate Thomas Jefferson who attended Unitarian churches. In the spirit of welcome, those who conceived of this social gathering did not take into account the centering of whiteness by asking people to attend in period dress. The organizers forgot or ignored the fact that in Jefferson's time, we black and brown UUs would have been slaves, slaves, property, traded, and sold, brutalized, and subjected. The matter was taken up at General Assembly when delegates challenged the appropriateness of holding this event. During a plenary session, delegates voiced their concerns by reading a statement of protest. In response, the organizers and other leaders gathered to consider how to proceed and came to a decision. Thomas Jefferson Ball would proceed ahead as planned. I ask myself, what would I wear? Would I be a house slave, favored for my lighter skin and good hair? My skin is a light brown that my daughter refers to as cinnamon, a product of a beautiful multiracial family history. Would I catch the eye of a white man? Who could leverage any opportunity to take my body as his property? What would I wear? Would I have had shoes on my work-worn feet? Would I have stretch marks across my belly from babies that were taken from me to sell to other plantations? Would I sing to myself faithful, mournful songs of liberation Dreaming for the day when I can taste freedom for myself and my family? What would I wear? Would I be allowed to come through the front entrance or directed to the back? To enter through the kitchen with the other slaves and servants? Would I be allowed to drink from the same punch bowl? Eat from the same platters? Would I sit with the other people of color? in a separate room or at the back of the gathering? Would I be permitted to look a white person in the eye or even speak their name? What would I wear, dear beloved you use? Tell me what I would have worn to attend this ball. What period clothes would represent who I would have been in Thomas Jefferson's time? Ouch. When we feel something deeply and are still finding the words ouch, seriously, ouch. Why do I raise this deeply wounding moment in our shared UU history? Because this isn't just a reflection about my lived experience as a person of color in a majority white denomination. This is also part of the history of how people of color experience sharing worship and community within our faith. It's a chapter in the story of who we are as a people, living in this country, swimming in the waters of white supremacy and centering whiteness, supported by centuries of indoctrinations and institutional structures. I grieve for the hurts that this time in our history caused. I grieve for those who left our communities because of how this event was handled, which broke their trust in finding spacious rest in our congregations from the pervasive, violent racism in our country. I grieve for those who, at the time, were unable to traverse the gaps in their spiritual understanding of justice and belonging. I grieve that it has taken this long to have this level of conversation about centering people of color. This ball was conceived by well-meaning people, beloved kin of mine and yours, who were able to identify welcome only through the eyes of white privilege. That is the insidious nature of centering whiteness. It denies personhood and the God-given right for all to be fully accounted. To put primacy on whiteness as the default setting in how we see and experience our world, that we are being theologically inconsistent, we covenant to affirm and promote the interdependent, web of all existence, of which we are a part, and yet we have devalued the full inclusion of too many. In small ways, this trend emerges when music and readings for worship draw primarily from Anglo-European composers and writers, and the paintings that hang in our congregations disproportionately represent our white four mothers and four fathers. We see this trend when congregational leadership is cultivated without honoring the diversity in our midst as a rich source of inspiration and prophetic messaging. We see this in considering that people of color have been a part of our living tradition for centuries, but our voices have been overlooked, silenced, were outright rejected with hostility. I ignite my flame of justice and shine a light on this scar because the healing is not done. The healing is not done because we are still called to do the work of dismantling white supremacy culture and decentering whiteness from our bones. From our congregations, from the ways in which we interact and support each other, we are called to fulfill the promises once made in the name of faith and proclaiming beloved community. We are called to match our words with our actions, to bring the holy into our midst by truly and without fear honoring the inherent worth and dignity of every person. This is a beautiful time of opportunity, beloveds, born of truly listening to people of color and beginning to repair the fabric of community that has been torn, ripped asunder by years of broken and empty promises, words of good intention, unmatched by purposeful action. I love being a Unitarian Universalist. I was birthed into this world with the calling of service on my heart. I was shaped and molded in our congregations. I also know that, as Dr. Cornel West shared with us in his 2015 Ware Lecture at General Assembly, if I have white supremacy in my heart because I was raised in this country, so do we all. While I grieve, I also have much reason to claim hope. I celebrate where we are as a people of faith because we are bravely facing the devastation and illness of other people. We are looking at ourselves in the mirror and seeking a new way. I celebrate that we have the moral and spiritual courage to listen deeply to voices that have been marginalized. I celebrate that the Beloveds are choosing to move back humbly, to make space for an evolution in leadership and consciousness. The spark of working towards the greatest good is seen in every moment of insight as so many are waking up to our participation in centering whiteness. Beloveds, Now is our time to lead with love and make right the ways our denomination has fallen short of our shared principles. We are powerful, aspirational, covenanted people, and we are being called to account for our historic, moral, and spiritual failings in order to move into authentic, beloved community. Now is our time to harness our ability to reflect inward in order to reemerge with a power greater than ourselves that gives rise to a new day. With love, peace in our hearts, beloveds, may it be so.
1: And practice. Lamentation for two voices by Erica and curate Rebecca Savage.
2: This is a, a responsive piece, um, but it's very simple. There's nothing in the order to service at a certain point. I ask everyone who identifies as white to repeat after me these words. So much has been lost.
1: So much has been lost, and in the case of our people of color, um, we will ask that you repeat, "Beloved, you must not be defensive when you hear or hurt." Please repeat after me: "Beloved, you must not be defensive when you hear or hurt our people of color." About two of us. Right? <laughs>
2: We need one another. This is the core of our Unitarian Universalist theology. We are the human agents of the holy, the vessels through which redemption, healing, salvation occur. There is only us in this short lifetime create the shimmering, glorious weed that might exist. We need one another before we arrived here this morning. We needed one another before we found our way to this congregation. We have needed one another all along, and we have failed one another. We, who are white, have failed people of color, and by extension, the shimmering, glorious weed
1: that might exist. One thing you must understand, beloved, is that whiteness isn't a solo act. It has a supporting cast. Lots of other things got created to uphold and justify whiteness. And you, beloved, have benefited from them without question.
2: We need one another, but we have not needed one another equally. We contain equal amounts of dignity and worth, but we do not need one another equally. If our need for one another were reciprocal, if our craving for each other's truth and experience were genuine, if we longed for others to feel as deep a sense of belonging as our own belonging, that need would have long ago forced us, by white can of faith, to surrender our grip on our certainty, our preferences, our standards of comfort.
1: My dearest friends, please try to understand that whiteness is limitless possibility. You swim in its waters and breathe in its air and take for granted that whiteness is the status quo. That's why many of you are offended by any reference to race. You believe you are acting and thinking neutrally, objectively, without preference for one group or the next, including your own. You see yourselves as colorless until people of color like me dump the garbage of race in your faces and your heads. You have no idea how absurd and hurtful that notion is. And yet we have grown accustomed to your defiance of our pain, struggle, and daily reality.
2: In our limitless possibility, Consciously and unconsciously, we who are white have inflicted wounds on the spirits and psyches of people of color. So much has been lost. Those who identify as white repeat after me. So much has been lost.
1: Beloved, you must not be defensive when you hear or hurt. Brothers and sisters of color, repeat with me, beloved, you must not be defensive when you hear our hurt.
2: We confess before the spirit of fullness and reconciliation that we have needed to be right, have needed to be white, more than we have needed to listen we have entrenched our whole life obliviousness in our identity as good people. So much has been lost. So much has been lost.
1: Beloved, you must not be defensive when you hear or hurt. I repeat, beloved, and my ancestors are here with me you must not be defensive when you hear our hurt.
2: The gentle mystery in whose heart we are suspended calls us to make room for all people to be their fullest selves, seen, heard, valued, included, empowered. We who are white, We whose hearts are drunk with the wine of our own privilege have not yet risen to that call. So much has been lost. So much has been lost. But beloved,
1: you must not be defensive when you hear our hurt. Beloved, you must never be defensive when you hear our hurt. We
2: need one another in different ways. May we, who are right hear the hurt and resolve to do better than we did before. We need one another now and moving forward. We need one another now. Though for some, it is too late. This is the call of our Unitarian Universalist Theology. We are the human agents of the Holy, We're vessels, the vessels through which redemption, healing, and salvation occur.
1: 11. we need each other. Let us live our calling in the world life of, the light of reconciliation,
2: reconciliation, redemption, healing together.
1: Before I get off the stage real quick, um, I just want to quickly pray for each one of you in your posterity and I want to pray for myself. Uh, For those who have known me since I've been involved with this congregation going on five years, my plea to each one of you has always been, you are the solution. Reflect on it, for those who have known you here for five years. You are, I am continuously looking at that solution. Most beneficent and most kind, thank you for the opportunity to come here right now in this month of Black History. Thank you, Master, for those who acknowledge the contribution that we have bestowed, not upon Americans, but humanity. Master, I also want to thank you in this very moment for those brothers and sisters who are not of my skin tone, who have questioned, thank you for them. Thank you for those who have revisited their spirits mm-hmm. and clearly understood that there is an opportunity to be white and just as black is beautiful, so is white. Equally beautiful. Bless their posterity, their children moving forward. Continue to move their spirits in the direction of righteousness equality unto all because white has the power. White is the solution because white is and was the problem. Master, we say thank you. Amen. 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 I love y'all. From here.
3: So I'm reading tired. This is a reflection written by Raina D. Mattson. Raina D. Mattson serves as the Director of Religious Education for a Unitarian Universalist congregation in Connecticut, where she has been serving for just over five years. Outside of congregational life, she is raising her three beautiful children as a single mother. The summer of 2016 began as an exciting one for me. I was finally going to a beloved Unitarian Universalist conference and retreat center. I'd heard many wonderful stories about it, and I couldn't wait to bring my three children with me. On the drive there, I felt excited about spending a full week in an entirely UU space, after all. It was my UU community that so lovingly embraced me after a very painful divorce and several painful years of church shopping. I needed this week. I needed this healing. As UUs descended on the camp and found their rooms, I began to introduce myself to others and thought I noticed them offering me a cursory hello before making a quick getaway. Maybe, I thought, it was hard for people to speak to me because I had my one-year-old in tow. Maybe they were eager to reconnect to old friends. There was one other black woman at the camp who I had noticed. I was thankful we both signed up for the same program. When I asked her, was it just me, or did she, too, feel a distinct coldness from the others? I wanted to make sure that I was not being paranoid, but unsettling things continued to happen. There was an issue with my daughter in childcare. they thought she was a problem and difficult in comparison with the other children, although a very kind person noted that she couldn't understand how my child was deemed a problem when she was doing the same things all the other children were doing. Then, a black child, the same age as my son, 12 years old, came crying to me one night. He was being bullied, but he wasn't being heard, because the adults around him insisted that they knew the girl, and she would never say those things. The child trusted that, as a black mother, I was the only person at the camp who would listen and believe him. I brought the matter out in the open. The typical excuses followed, like the boy misunderstood what she meant, and he was just being too sensitive, and it was just in fun, and nothing was really meant by her comments. I tuned those excuses out, and I spent a lot of time alone that week. When my daughter and I walked around the conference center, I saw reminders of racism everywhere from the statues and memorials to the paintings on the walls, it was everywhere. It was clear as day, your kind are not welcome here. I would end my strolls by going to the dining hall, only to find there was no table for me, not because there weren't empty chairs, but because I was told that there was no room at the table for me and my toddler. The empty seats were for other people, I was told, and they couldn't make room for me. The pattern became so distressing that, on most days, I considered not eating, but I couldn't let my child starve. If my new friend was there, she always made room for me, and there were the kids. After the incident with the young black boy, the kids came to me quite a bit to mediate things going on between them. They even took turns giving me a break from my little one. Eventually, one of them would see me trying to find a table, and no matter how many people were at their table, they would find a way to squeeze me and my little one in. As kind as they were, they ate quickly and were off, and again I was left alone in in the silence. As all the tables around me buzzed with talk and laughter, and I sat there alone, staring at my one-year-old. One evening, my youngest finally settled down enough for me to attend evening worship. I was so excited. I grabbed my lantern and journeyed to the chapel. The guest speaker spoke so eloquently, talking about what he called the elephant in the space, how the camp was rooted in racism. His words brought me to the edge of my seat. I was thrilled and excited. I hadn't been paranoid. This white man saw what I saw. He was naming my hurt, my truth, and I was elated. As we left worship, my heart felt right. In the darkness that surrounded us, the voices started. I heard campers, who couldn't see me, a black woman, listening, agree that it was one of the worst services they had been to at the camp, and how they couldn't believe he dared to say those things and how they, who come into the chapel to be uplifted, did not want to have that kind of mess thrown in their face. I melted into the darkness that surrounded us. That night, I cried myself to sleep. When I left the camp at the end of the week, the knot that had formed in my stomach started to ease. Once home, I shared my story, my truth, with multiple people who were connected to the camp and its programs, people who I believed might use my experience to make future conferences and retreats more welcoming. I even offered to teach, to add some diversity to future retreats. I was told by each person that they would pass on my information and have someone contact me so that they could get a better idea of what happened and how I felt so it wouldn't happen to others. That never happened. I sent several emails and responded to all the surveys and asked to be heard. But as usual, when I bring up concerns about race, there is only silence in response. Fast forward nearly a year and the approach of another summer, my oldest two children chatted excitedly about going back to the camp. Although I had explained that it took two years of funds and planning to go, They were still hopeful that we could make it work for this summer. I felt anxious. I felt guilty. And I could feel the knot creeping back into my stomach. I wanted them to see their friends and go back to a place that they came to love. And yet, I could not see myself stepping foot in that retreat center. I broke down one day I shared with my oldest two children my experiences the previous summer. The father is white, and at times I choose not to tell them things that I feel would cast a negative light on white people, as to not give them negative feelings towards their family or to be torn about their own genetic makeup. But I could be silent no more, and as I shared with them my experiences and my time at the camp, They sat there, not saying a word, but staring at me with silent tears rolling down their cheeks. They asked me why I didn't say anything during our week at the camp, why I hadn't shared with them sooner. Like a lot of parents, I answered that I wanted to protect them and not give a negative light to such an enriching experience they had had. My oldest child then asked me if I often sit in silence and hold in the pain. I answered him truthfully. I answered with a yes. Many times, as a black woman, I hold in my pain and my experiences to protect others to keep and hold up the white fragility that I have been taught, or rather trained, to value more than my own feelings and my own experiences. More even than my own needs and self-worth. I have been trained to minimize myself, my light, my voice, to just grin and bear it, to put up with it because I should know that they meant well or... I didn't want to seem too sensitive or to be the angry black person in the room. But I'm tired of being silent. It's a heavy load to carry day in and day out. Sometimes I'd like to take off my blackness and pick it up another day. Sometimes it's just too heavy a load, but I can't, so I press on. So I ask this question whenever someone will listen. Who is standing in your dining hall looking for a seat at the table? And can you make room for them too?
4: This is a pastoral prayer by Connie Simon. She is the interim minister at the Unitarian Society of Germantown in Pennsylvania and also a contract chaplain at the Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. She graduated from Meadville Lombard Theological School in 2018 and intends to pursue parish ministry. Spirit of life and love, God of many names, we gather in awareness of the opportunity before us as Unitarian Universalists.
1: We have been given many
4: chances before today to heal the wounds of the racism and oppression that have beset our denomination for many years and held us back from realizing the inherent worth and dignity of all Unitarian Universalists. We have made some progress, but we still have a long way to go. We have an opportunity today to renew our commitment to this work, and we embrace it fully and thankfully. We come together to listen to the voices of those whose contributions to our faith have been neglected for far too long. We welcome them home into a new Unitarian Universalism, into a faith that embraces and includes all of us and brings us closer to the beloved community of which we dream. We pray for healing of the wounds of the past and present. We pray for open hearts and minds that we may envision what is possible. We pray for the courage not only to speak up, but also to listen, even when the words are hard to hear. We pray for compassion and understanding. We pray for resilience and determination, and for the fearlessness to take risks, to make mistakes and keep trying. In gratitude for the opportunities we have been given and the promise of what we can achieve together And in the name of all that is holy, we say amen.